the story of Australia, you know, one of the oldest civilizations, suddenly coming face to face with the rest of the world, invading their place, and then these different cultures meeting and mixing and interacting is how can that not be interesting? And yet, it's told so badly in our country. We so often fail to really use all this material to tell our stories. Welcome back to the Commonwealth of Dunces. I am Jump Daddy. I'm Valancey Sterling. Each week, we talk to somebody fresh, somebody fun, and sometimes even somebody just a little bit famous from around the Commonwealth of Nations. That is, that strange union of countries that once bore the yoke of the British Empire. Where are we headed to today, Val? Australia. You! More particularly inside the mind of one Australian who's taken the time to travel our massive country and while she was doing it, found out a fair bit about herself. On that note, Val, have you ever found yourself behind the wheel and hitting the road, travelling Australia's landmass to learn a little bit more about it? It's people, it's history, and in so doing, maybe learning a little bit more about yourself. I'm ashamed to say I haven't, but in fact, my older child did go to the Red Centre on that kind of road trip drive with my husband when he was in prep. I was home with a small baby, so couldn't attend, but he did the whole see the Red Centre, hang out in the community, jump in billabong. And actually, for him as a five-year-old, it was a profoundly moving and enlightening experience and has really shaped his interest in Indigenous Australia ever since. That was fantastic for him. Myself, I have been only once kind of in what you describe as an outback situation, which was I went up to the Northern Territory, which is a huge part of Northern Intercentral Australia, to visit a friend who was working up there. And we travelled around and went to... Kakadu National Park and did a hike there, but only went as far south as the town called Catherine, which I think is really about a third of the way down the Northern Territory. Look, it's a massive landmass. At least you have stepped away from our coastal cities. Of course, Australia being one of the most urbanised countries on earth, despite the expanse of its landmass, most people still crowd into our capital cities. You've stepped away from that. You've gone and had a look, a sticky beak, at the Northern Territory, a truly massive and sparsely populated place. I'm impressed. Oh, I highly recommend it. Just the geography, like, it's amazingly diverse. And the people, there aren't many of them, but gee, they're all interesting. And last but not least, your addiction to cold beverages and any variety will increase significantly. Yeah, Val, absolutely. Whether it is the hot red desert sands of the southern part of the Northern Territory or indeed tropical Darwin up north, a cold beverage is something you want to be keeping close at hand at all times when in that part of Australia. Now, speaking of that part of Australia, 
We're going to be catching up shortly with somebody who's living there right now. Her name is Monica Tan. Born in Sydney, Australia to Chinese-Malaysian parents, Monica's work has long combined writing and activism. So this has included time working at Greenpeace in China to a role as the Deputy Culture Editor at Guardian Australia. Right now, Monica's a resident in Darwin, the tropical capital of the Northern Territory. There, she's manager of the renewable energy advocacy group, Repower NT. And most moving of all to our overeducated listenership, Monica Tan is also the author of the recent Australian travel memoir, Stranger Country. And I can attest, it's a genuinely thoughtful, genuinely page-turning recount of six months on the road. I used to read the paper religiously every Saturday. I can't even remember. From as early as I can remember, maybe 11 or something like that. And it was really a door to a larger world. I used to love reading restaurant reviews, even though there was no chance in hell that I was actually going to go to any of these restaurants. But I just loved the way they described the food. And, you know, it was really through the paper that I was exposed to sophisticated writing, articles from around the world as well as Australia. Did you at all feel a lack of, you know, just a reflection of what you or your family looked like in the media or was that something that in a child's mind didn't really register and that was simply what you were interested in and and you pursued it? There were hardly any Asians on TV. There's still not that many, to be honest. It's a bit of a cliche, but these things they do... Yeah, they definitely impact you. I mean, I didn't feel like being Asian was at all cool or attractive and that, that will affect your your sense of self. But at the same time, now that I've gotten older, I feel like on the scale of trauma, it's like relatively minor, <laughs> to be honest. At least, you know, I had all my legal rights. I went to one of the fanciest private schools in Sydney. Like I can hardly complain about my upbringing. On that note... ABC, an acronym for Australian-born Chinese, features with regularity throughout your book as as a title of self-conception. When did you start to conceive of yourself as such as potentially a little adjacent to quote-unquote mainstream Australia? Was there a defining moment or it was just simply a, a reality of existence that you became more aware of as you, as we all do, become more self-aware? Yeah, I think being an ABC was definitely something meaningful to me. I mean, I had I had siblings who were ABC. I had friends who were ABC like me. We did share something that, that I didn't share with other friends. There is some kind of meaningful and common experience that comes with being an Australian-born Chinese. And I still feel that. I still feel an affinity with other Australian-born Chinese. It's an affinity you have. It doesn't, I mean, you, you, have, you feel affinities with, with friends for all kinds of reasons. And that kind of specific cultural experience is just is one of many. But yeah, it was meaningful to me as well. My understanding of the of an ABC was a generational thing. I didn't know many older ABCs, and I, I think I talk about it in the book that when I met an older ABC, I think it was in the post office, and it was a man, and he was in his forties, 
and I was like seven or something and and he just opens his mouth and out came an Australian accent and I just found that super weird. But then I had this second thought where I'm like, well, if I find that weird, that's off-putting because that's going to be me one day. <laughs> so why do I find that weird and uh, and wrong? It looked wrong. So it's, <laughs> you know, a, a man like that should have an Asian accent, should have a Chinese accent, shouldn't have an Australian accent. There was something freaky about it. So that was, yeah, little things like that are disturbing to, to oneself. But actually, <laughs> I'm not going to experience that because now that I know more about history, I've realised that that generation of ABCs were, was quite rare, whereas they became much more common with the sort of end of the white Australia policy and waves of Chinese immigrants coming during the 60s and 70s onwards and then their children being born in the 80s and 90s and onwards. So, in fact, it is natural that I found that guy freaky because it was rare back then, but it won't be rare by the time I'm in my 40s. It's going to be quite common, in fact. You've touched on a point there at how generational these conceptions are. Have you had any interactions with Australian-born Chinese people, say, 20 years younger than yourself, so starting, let's say, high school right now, who have grown up on the internet, and if they're in particularly, say, Chinese-speaking households, they may well do a lot of their communicating via Chinese social media, have had satellite on our cable and online TV that comes direct from China, and so haven't had that kind of establishing experience in Australia consuming quote-unquote mainstream Australian entertainment, news and things like that. Do you think there might be quickly enough a new generational divide of ABCs that you might find just as jarring? Um, well, the new divide comes from the fact that lots of the new immigrants are from mainland China, whereas in my parents' generation, a lot of the Chinese immigrants came from Malaysia or Taiwan or mm. Singapore, Hong Kong, and even like southern Chinese um, from mainland China. But a lot of this, there's many more Chinese people now in Australia, and I would say most of them actually now come from all over mainland China. And you're right, like they do um, bring with them now these close digital relationships like to back to the homeland, which they maintain. I think that the children, though, born in Australia will definitely be very Australian and integrated with Australian society. I've met mainland Chinese people with and I've met their 10-year-old son who's no different, that not too different from 10-year-old me 20, 30 years ago. Do you think people are having more or less common experiences in Australia as they grow up? Hmm. That's a great question. I guess is Sydney becoming more ghettoized? I don't think so. Like I, I think that they're I think that the Asian populations are growing. I think that we always I think the Asian population in Sydney always stuck together, but they were smaller before. And now those now their sort of footprints are are expanding. So they will dominate certain schools more. Possibly they haven't really it's uh, taken over the North Shore of Sydney, the Upper North Shore yet. I wouldn't say that we're necessarily becoming 
more with each other. I think that when I was growing up, there were just not that many, not as many Asians. So yeah, I was surrounded by a mainly white cohort, but yeah, I think that we're actually, we all still have this. So still so many opportunities to mix with different kinds of people in Sydney. Up Gertrude Street, we'd walk once more With just a few cents short And we stopped at the builders to see Who we could see I moved to China when I was 26 and you really start to leave behind your sort of wild partying days at that age and you start to care more about politics and I, I, got a, I don't know serious issues I know it's different for everyone but for me that's that's when I started to really get engaged with Chinese politics and international affairs and and the environment human rights same time China is also this incredibly rich a place with rich history and languages and culture in a way that I found I was swept away by the romance of that uh, and the beauty and felt a real connection to, to that country as my ancestral homelands. And there was this moment where I, I would think back to Australia, which was a country that was feeling very far away. Seeing Australia from that perspective made me realise how little I knew about Australia, truly. I knew very little about its history. I knew next to nothing about its Indigenous um, culture and identity. And I had seen very little of it. So when I reached the point where I decided to move back to Australia, I made a promise to myself that I would I would change that and that I would I, I would approach Australia in the same way I approached China without scepticism and instead with a lot of enthusiasm to learn and experience the country. Um, and I was had a very also deliberate sense that I should know more about Indigenous Australia as well. And that's it's, it's something that lots of Australia, lots of non-Indigenous Australians will, it will occur to them that it's something they don't know a lot about and that they probably should change for themselves and that's a journey that lots of non-Indigenous Australians go on to self-educate. So I would that's what I did and I was really lucky to land a journalism job, a dream journalism job at The Guardian, which was also a way in which I could learn more about Indigenous Australians because they were very supportive of me writing or covering stories that were related to Indigenous Australians. So that gave me a way to travel the country and meet lots of different people and, you know, do write stories about history and language and culture as things that I was really wanted to understand better. Having felt like I'd done that in China, it was it's funny to then decide to do it in a place that you'd grown up in and yet had not had not been connected to those that side of your own country before. At some point though, Reporting for the Guardian wasn't enough. Uh, <laughs> it's right, time to write right. a book. I haven't actually, I haven't actually reached the trip yet. So, after a couple of years of yeah doing that as journalism, I so, I, I started to tire of the churn of of, of journalism, which I don't think it would surprise anyone. There's, it's very fast and sometimes can feel a bit superficial. 
and I decided that what I wanted was to engage a bit more deeply with the country and experience the country without that lens that you bring when you're a journalist where you've got an an agenda or an angle that you're you know, you're trying to frame a certain place in a very specific way, which is fine. That's how journalism works. Um, yeah, I just wanted to go in more like the way that I'd gone into China with naive enthusiasm um, and curiosity. So for me, I decided to, to do that as a road trip, a six-month road trip. In the couple of years that I'd been back in Australia, I had started doing something which I'd never before done in my life in a regular way, which was camping. How did you get started? Did you just buy a tent and go to the Kuringai National Park or was there something a little bit more involved? Yeah, I think like the Blue Mountains was one of the first places I went camping and I was like seeing this guy. And so we just went camping. I remember it was raining, but it was just so beautiful to wake up and smell the rain on all the plants in the Blue Mountains and that sort of dreary fog and the quiet and the, and just after that, I'm like, I love this. <laughs> so you head out on the road mid-2016. What kind of preconceptions did you find quickly or perhaps slowly falling away about about the country, about the people, maybe even about yourself? Um, one, of the, one of the things that became really clear is just how multicultural regional Australia is. Um, I think that we have this idea that it's only in the big cities that non-white, non-Indigenous people live. But I was quite surprised to go to places like Alice Springs and other other even more remote places and you, you go to the local supermarket and there'll be an Asian, there'll be a Chinese backpacker, just some kid in their 20s who is going on an adventure and you, you found them in one of the most remote parts of northeast Arnhem Land, that kind, of, that kind of thing. That was really cool and to find so many threads of Chinese, of the Chinese-Australian story throughout the land, a story that goes back to the early 1800s also left a really big impression on me. And what about personalities that might be alien to mainstream Australian history? Are there some that you encountered along your way, whether living or indeed dead, that you think should be a little bit more part of our historical fabric? I encountered endless stories that were fascinating and yet not a core part of who we are. I was really lucky to go to, to, to visit sites where Aboriginal people had walked off, did some of the earliest strikes here in Australia. They were so brave. They were demanding for equal rights, equal pay, and, and, and then their land as well. To go to these sites and meet either the people who participated in those strikes, like at Wave Hill Walk-Off in Kalkarindji, or to go to Yakala and see the earliest documents where Aboriginal, the, the young old people there were, were sort of expressing their relationship, if not ownership of, of that land through, through a document where they are painting their spiritual designs in a, in a way that has the same concrete legality for them as, as, as a contract with words or a, our constitution has for us. 
these kinds of places and these kinds of stories. Another one is Broome. Like the city of Broome is just, or a town, you know, it's a town which has so many, such a rich multicultural history where the relationships between Macassan, Japanese, Aboriginal, Chinese, European, infused with this romance of being pearl divers and and the danger of, of that kind of work and the slavery that was happening there. I mean, that's not romantic, but it's extremely dramatic. So I think the drama that I saw from these these spaces where there was so much pain but also so much perseverance and incredible expressions of dignity from people who were um, experiencing extremely difficult new things. The story of Australia, you know, one of the oldest civilizations, suddenly coming face to face with the rest of the world, invading their, their place and then these different cultures meeting and mixing and interacting is how can that not be interesting? And yet, it's told so badly in our country. We so often fail to really use all this material to tell our stories. Why do you think that is? I think that it's very difficult. Those stories are really painful. I think Australians have a, a cultural cringe that exists in no other, almost no other place in the world. We consider ourselves inferior to the place with real cultures. So wherever you culturally hail from, except for, you know, indigenous people, you feel that, you know, your homeland is where the real culture is. And because we are one of the newest countries in the world in terms of, let's say, Australia really didn't begin till, till the first fleet. Let's, you know, say that is the beginning of, of the Australia as we know it because prior to that was um, hundreds of Indigenous Australian cultures who had their own identity. That's pretty new, actually. And so we were very quickly swamped with technology that helps, helped us connect with our homelands. And so we, we've never properly cut off the ties to those motherlands and, and by failing to do that, we don't engage properly with the place that we're in. We still much would much rather eat the food and watch the TV and watch the movies and read the news of those places from which we came from. Came from, came from, came from. a prominent Indigenous man that you'd once interviewed, I suppose, for The Guardian, had heard of your trip while you were mid-trip. And look, I'll quote here. Apparently, he had exploded with irritation. He was sick of Australians who used Indigenous Australia to, quote, find themselves, end quote. Blustering to a mutual acquaintance, why can't they just leave us alone? And it goes on to say that you were reminded of a cynical saying that every white fella who heads to a remote blackfella community can be classified as a missionary, a mercenary or a misfit. I mean, that trope is, is very real. You can definitely see threads of that here in the territory with non-Aboriginal Australians. And I like to joke that I'm all three in my own way. 
I got a job that makes me a mercenary. I'm a campaigner that makes me a um, missionary and I'm a misfit. Like that's self-explanatory. But I think that his, this person's attitude is common. It's understandable. It comes out of frustration. It comes out of a sense that it is futile for us to try to live together and understand each other. When he said that, it was upsetting and made me stop and think. I had stopped and thought a lot all the time before going on this trip and when reflecting on what kind of book I would write. But I came, I always came to the same conclusion, which is that we should always try. We should try and that it's worth trying and to give up in the way that he, I think, was articulating is not really the right way to go. His sense that more damage is done through interactions between non-Indigenous Australians and Indigenous Australians is is context dependent. And I think it's all about making sure Aboriginal people are able to control those interactions. So if there are communities that want to keep a, a sort of tight rein on things and they want to keep their space as black or non-black as they want, that needs to be respected. So for me, that was the attitude that I tried to have is respect what people want, but also acknowledge that there are communities that do want to interact with me or us and there are different ways to interact and I think that interaction is still very important. Later on in the book, you go on a bit of a riff about what you would do if you were Queen of Australia. And it's, <laughs> I think it's something, though, that a lot of Australians, uh, certainly myself, from a relatively privileged, relatively removed from the trials and tribulations of Indigenous history and, and Indigenous existence, will often muse. So so what do we do? Where, what's that simple answer that we, we should just be reaching for? If only we had the courage or the political will. And in the book, at least, your thoughts at the time tend towards uh, native title and really a, a process of basically handing back title to traditional landowners. What would you do if... Republicans like Peter Fitzsimons get their way and then there's a wonderful coup and all of a sudden we are a newly minted monarchy with you at the head, absolute ruler. <laughs> Look, I, I don't want to be supreme leader of Australia, so don't worry about that. But I still maintain that treaties, personally, that's what I want. I want that for myself. I'm not ever going to feel right with the land until we have that, until I'm living on a piece of Australia that has treaties or treaty with the traditional owners of that place. What does treaty mean, though? It's such a broad, potentially broad term. What, in from your vantage, does that mean? In the simplest terms, an agreement between the traditional owners and the new non-traditional owners, um, the non-Indigenous people of that land, that let's live together. Things happened in the past, but now we start anew and we agree that you now can live here and be here and belong here and be of this place. You know, I think that the terms and conditions of that is something that has to be nodded out, but in this, at, at, at the very basic level, the spirit of it, that's what that means to me. 
It's interesting though, isn't it? Because it, it takes as a precondition that settler Australia, white, Asian or otherwise, are always going to be here. There's no, you know, clause in the treaty that you guys can just fuck off, which in some ways seems to me like I'm challenged by this notion of reconciliation just in the pure notion of it in that we, colonial Australia, have won. And so this reconciliation is essentially saying sorry basically on our own terms. I would say that I want treaty for myself and I don't think that I will necessarily get that. And because they may not, wherever I am, those people may not want to give that to me. So that that thing that I'm asking for, I'm begging for that. And it's not something they are obligated to give to me. That request is coming from my end and it's something that if they deny that, which they are well in their rights to do, it means that we will just continue to live without the proper spiritual permission to be here, which is incredibly sad but is well within their rights to deny that to us. The way you put it there, I think that perhaps distills (laughs) kind of the dead heart of otherwise wealthy, otherwise prosperous Australian existence, that gnawing sense that I think, again, a lot of people have, that there's a spiritual hole in this country. Very compelling B plot that threaded throughout Stranger Country. It concerns the eligible young men you encountered on your travels. <laughs> you don't you don't labour the point or overemphasize it. It's just a nice thread in the book where you meet these various Gents, the handsome Belgian hitchhiker Thomas, the charming bastard Ryan, the well-built Samuel. Uh, You're also propositioned by a young man named Sheridan. What insight did you get into the Australian male in all its diversity and all its interactions with the Australian female? Firstly, my life is very dominated by women, generally. I have always worked in female-dominated industries. I went to a private girls' school. Most of my friends are women and the the kinds of women that are friends with other women. So men (laughs) and the Australian man is not a thing that's well known to me, to be completely honest. Truly a stranger country. (laughs) It is. And, And that was flipped on its head when I went on this road trip. Like I overwhelmingly was interacting with Australian men rather than women. I was mainly not in the cities. I was not mainly not even in the towns. I was mainly out on country. So I was meeting park rangers. I was meeting other campers. For whatever reason, a lot of the people doing that work on country tended to be men rather than women. And I think there was some also just coincidence that some of my connections and that I had tended to be men than women and and they introduced me to other people that they knew yeah so it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of an accident a lot of it and then some of it was also just like rangers tended to be men tour guides tended to be men that sort of thing I actually took kind of stuff out of the book which which I could have put in there but I didn't and which is that I started to feel very uncomfortable with the attention I was getting. I started to feel like a celebrity, which sounds 
like amazing, but actually it was really annoying. I was starting to get tired of the attention I felt like I was getting. And what would that look like? I think uh, a lot of just, men as, uh, are unaware of what attentions women receive because they're not on the receiving end. Staring, making comments. If I was 20, you know, 30 years younger, you would have, I would have liked to have been with you, that kind of shit. And, oh, and there was one guy who just said, eight in the morning when I was fishing on a pier just straight out asked if I could have sex with him so there was a range of yeah it was a range of encounters that were sometimes wanted and I had a few romances on my trip and but but overall were not there's a lot of there's a lot of these as I said like misfits in in the top end there are a lot of men who have a string of former partners and children here and there and then and they don't they didn't really fit in with conventional Australian society Without compromising your career path at your current place of employ, <laughs> clearly though you've led a, a relatively peripatetic existence these past few years. Do you see a future for highly skilled professionals like yourself in the Territory or is it like it is for a lot of people, a couple of years and then back to real life in Sydney, in Melbourne? It's a perennial question that's asked in the territory. Can we actually make this a thing? <laughs> the territory has struggled to make it a thing. What stops it? What do you feel that other people uh, or perhaps you find you're like, oh, it'd be nice to have X, Y, Z? It's, it's constantly in crisis mode. There's always like a huge amount of debt. Money is not spent properly. So it just swings wildly um, between big sugar hits that come from some big gas project that's open and then the the crash that comes after that. So it's a very remote place. It's not really designed well for agriculture. There's the, the temperatures, it's not like Sydney, which is very temperate and comfortable. You have to deal with extreme seasonal changes and a lot of people aren't, they can only put up with that for a certain period of time. So, yeah, there's there's a kind of multitude of challenges that does make this place a difficult place to settle. Like I'm reading Capricornia by Xavier Herbert and I find it amazing to recognise that the narratives spoken about in the territory, especially because we've got an election coming up, these have persisted now for almost 100 years. We're underpopulated. Now instead of trying to get a pig farm going, it's like a solar farm going instead. The, the stories remain the same. It's just the actors that change and, and so, you know, some of the nouns change. But actually, and then, and then you know, of course, there's the Indigenous people in that story and, and gosh, you read this novel and the, the relationship between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people have, hasn't changed that much either. And Through it all, they smile and persist and they know that we're only here for a short period of time and then we're going to fuck off and, 
they're still here and they love their country and they just watch our circus and suffer because of it as well. Uh, not everyone will have the wherewithal to uh, see as much of the country as you have been fortunate enough and enterprising enough to do so. So what about some book recommendations? You've mentioned a few already. Perhaps we could bother you maybe for your, if you're going to read three books on Australia in lieu of coming to the top end or before coming to the top end or the central desert or wherever, what should we be reading? God, three is just not at all enough. I would definitely add, it's not really, it's not the top end, but, and it's a bit of a strange recommendation, but Indigenous Australia for Dummies by Larissa Brent is really excellent. So if you don't know her, she's an Aboriginal uh, lawyer, law expert, professor, extremely talented, and she has written this beginner's guide <laughs> to Indigenous Australia. It's it's well worth reading, especially for those non-Indigenous Australians who are at the beginning of that journey of trying to self-educate. So that book's very important. I think that Alexis Wright's Carpenteria is very challenging read, but the language is just so uh, different. It's this book where I just have a sense that I'm not actually at all in the white man's head. Like I'm very much in another culture's head and you have to actually look and think differently, which is something I got a feeling for when I was in China. And with Indigenous Australia, you you get that. Sometimes it's so different, their world. Uh, And I don't have many books I can name like that. I haven't read enough Indigenous Australian literature to name too many like that, but definitely that her book did that for me. And then Xavier Herbert's Capricornia I'm reading right now is great. We have the Never Songlines by Bruce Chatwin. Oh, Phil O'Brien's <laughs> books. I am talking up Phil O'Brien's so much to very highbrow audiences. Uh, anyway. Sorry, that's that's not registering at all with me. He's the cliche of a Territorian. He's, he was like a hard drinker, has had a thousand different jobs and never been that good with them at them <laughs> he's like wandered wandered the territory for decades and he's just written these books that are full of yarns basically and um often like very just beautifully told it just gives you a real flavor for this type of territory and that is like possibly disappearing as we become more <laughs> territories become a bit more cosmopolitan so yeah his books are worth reading as well do you think your time in darwin as well as uh, promoting very important work in the renewable power industry will also result in a salty set of vignettes that may someday make it to print <sighs> No, I don't think so. I do have some like projects or a book that I'm working on. Uh, it's a young adult fiction and will be set in the future, like 250 years from now, when Indigenous Australians have control of the land again. And then it's in a, a romance adventure story. Huh. Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I'm recognizing perhaps echoes of things in your book taken to the level. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. My obsessions remain constant. 
But there's just so much to say about them. I think on that note, something very much to look forward to in another book from you, Monica Tan. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. The Commonwealth of Dunces. The places that Chinese Australians came from back in the day were actually former British colonies. So she mentioned her parents are both from Malaysia, but she also spoke of Chinese immigrants from Singapore and from Hong Kong. Whereas the two of you talked about more recent arrivals being from mainland China. And it's interesting to think about the the difference in terms of the cultural story and connection to British colonialism, because obviously for those more recent immigrants from mainland China, that connection, that story isn't there in the same way that it was for those waves of immigration in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Most Chinese immigrants to Australia now come from the mainland and so they're not coming from places where English is a part of everyday life, where there is a shared history, if only in the sense of, say, structures of governments and jurisprudence. They're coming from the mainland, from a genuinely different culture and also from a country relative to Australia or just about any other country on earth that is ascendant in terms of its global influence culturally, economically, and every other factor that you can think of. Whatever the persona and personality, you can't help but think the ABCs of the future, the Australian-born Chinese of the future, will have a very different time of it compared to what Monica did. And I think the point about younger ABCs and their ability to access content straight from mainland China or indeed all young Australian people's ability to access content from everywhere that's not here, including America and the impact that's having on uh, Australian cultural identity generally, let alone Australian cultural identity and our connection back to our British colonial past and our Commonwealth identity. Yeah, for anybody the age of 30 up, you will be shocked and perhaps saddened to go into, say, a secondary school these days in Australia, particularly in the cities, to hear the kind of words and accents that proliferate amongst our younger people. It's not the broad Australian she'll be right of old. Unfortunately, a lot of Americanisms, not just in terms of phraseology, but in terms of cringe accents <laughs> are, are pervading the mouths of our up-and-coming generations. What are you doing to ensure your children grow up in Australia and sound Australian, Val? JD, it's a battle. It's a battle. I'll put it this way. They do use a range of slang that's currently popular, probably most of which is American, and we generally let that slide. What we draw the line at is the use of American terms instead of Australian terms for everyday objects. Mom, take the cooler out of the trunk and put it on the sidewalk. That's it, that's it. So if we hear them using terms just generally that are American, we really clamp down on it, but are probably more generous around the teen slang aspect because our parents had to put up with us saying ace and cool all the time. So... (laughs) (laughs) Sick.
I think Monica's trip around Australia could also stand as an exemplar in that way. If in our little urban hidey holes where we're constantly connected to every corner of the universe and being more and more influenced by the pop culture of America and elsewhere, a great place to get away from that Wi-Fi is to hit the road and head out into Outback Australia where... Perhaps fortunately, thanks to our inability to provide good, serviceable internet throughout our wide brown land, people still actually have to talk to each other (laughs) and engage with their actual physical environment to not only make a livelihood, but simply entertainment, recreation and everything in between. So on that note of road trips for the future, I think it's time that we... Hit the proverbial road, Val. It's goodbye from me, Jump Daddy. And goodbye from me, Valanti Sterling. Boy. Next stop, Syria.